Hello and welcome to the latest edition of News and Arts. My name is Amiri Tella. You're listening to WKCR FM New York and WKCR HD1. Thank you, thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Really pleased to have a, an exciting guest, and we've been working on this for almost a month now. <laughs> so it's finally come to fruition. I'm joined here today in the studio with Mr. Mark Hannaford, um, who I first met as I was trying to apply for classes in the fall or introduce myself to in the fall. Um, and he is, uh, or was that the spring? That was the spring. Uh, yeah, beginning of beginning of this semester. Beginning of this yeah. spring semester. Um, he's a graduate student finishing up his time there, but uh, currently an instructor um, at Columbia University of Beyond Boundaries, Radical Black Experimental Music. That's the course that he teaches. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. So we're going to try and cover a lot of bases today. Um, and I want to start in a way where we can sort of build a conversation on top of everything that we 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 cover here in these first few minutes. Mm. Um, so I just want to get the listeners to know a little bit more about you. Um, could you describe, I guess, your work very broadly? Um, what is it that you do specifically with your own career and, and your own studies um, in school now, but also, I guess, correlating that to the course that you currently teach? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, okay, so I'm at the, in the sort of final stages of the music theory program here at Columbia. And I specialize in jazz and improvisation, particularly of the experimental sort of avant-garde kind since, you know, basically 1960. Um, and I'm very interested in questions of, um, you know, what we might call like identity. So thinking about race and gender and sexuality and class and nationhood mm -hmm. in relation to that music. Um, as a music theorist, a part of my... Um, Part of what I, part of the way that I engage in the music is to do sort of close listening and close readings, so via sort of transcription or, right. or various other ways of thinking about analysis um, and trying to be sort of aware of the different forms that that, that can take. So um, my dissertation is on Mulhall Richard Abrams, um, one of the founders of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Um, and the class that I'm teaching is sort of related to that dissertation work, but I suppose a much broader purview than the dissertation mm -hmm. um, and not a class for music majors or music theorists specifically. It's for a sort of a anybody can kind of take it. <laughs> right. And then in terms of my um, practice as an improviser, I'm a pianist and a composer and I play here in New York City when I can find the time between <laughs> everything else and uh yeah i play around town and play with people and try to make music that i like and right, right. you know and it sort of falls into a similar area i suppose of practice emphasis on kind of experimentalism and improvisation and original composition right and i remember yes i remember we we met really briefly um just to discuss the idea of you coming onto the show and mm. I, I was asking about sort of your introduction into various types of music mm. where w where would you say I guess to revitalize that conversation yeah um, where would you say you kind of got your musical inspiration from when you were younger what was it about jazz in improvisational music mm. that in you know connected with you at such a at various points in your life yeah uh well without going into too much I suppose but <laughs> um 
you know, both my parents were from a generation where collecting vinyl was a really big mm. part of their lives. So my dad had a huge sort of vinyl and then later CD collection. And, you know, after dinner every night, he would he would go to the sort of lounge room where he had a mm-hmm. sort of hi-fi system and listen to records. And mm-hmm. after a certain, at a certain age, I, I would follow him in there. And, you know, it was mainly, you know, like sort of a mixture of, Basically, blues-inflected music, either blues proper or like rock. You know, he's into the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton, but also Jimi Hendrix and BB King mm-hmm. and John Lee Hooker, and and then sort of, you know, when, as as he's listening to Hendrix, he's also sort of also sort of hip to Miles Davis, and sort of that was the sort of thread that I got interested in hearing. Mm-hmm. I think the j- first jazz record I ever heard was Bitches Brew, you know, mm-hmm. through my dad, and and then I. Just because there was music in the house, I took up piano lessons through the local school system, basically, and took a took a liking to it and liked sort of making up my own versions of songs and things like that. Mm-hmm. I had a really um, so a really crucial person in my young musical life was my high school teacher. Um, she was an incredibly encouraging teacher, somebody who recognized that I had an interest in music that a lot of other people weren't that interested in mm. i was really in, sort of fascinated by 20th century composition like stravinsky and schomburg and stuff mm. whenever i heard it i was sort of fascinated with it and so she really fostered that interest in me and got me sort of practicing and really passionate about music right. and then i did an undergraduate d- degree at a conservatory in australia where i'm from and again lucky to have good mentors people who you know in addition to sort of learning about the history you know the sort of conventional history of jazz piano learning about bill evans and bud powell and all these great musicians mm-hmm. um i also had people who were sort of going you know you should check andrew hill out or paul blay or carla blay or you know or more richard abrams or don pullen all these people who are sort of a little bit to the side or you know some somehow somehow <laughs> at an angle to that sort right. of straight ahead tradition um and so that's really how I got into sort of this music, I suppose, that we're right, talking about right. now. Yeah. And then the transition into the academic mm-hmm. context, what 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 made that pursuit from the element of studying it too, but also teaching it? This yeah. Semester? Well, I don't know. I've always liked teaching. Um, I've always liked trying to be a clear communicator about the things that I like about music and trying to awaken that in other people rather than mm. tell them you know what they should be listening to or, or you know like try to try to generate enthusiasm for the for the music in the way that i feel enthusiastic mm-hmm. about the music um but then in terms of so so you know as a as a professional musician in australia teaching was sort of a natural thing that a lot of people did to earn some money on the side um and i liked it and so that enabled me to sort of keep teaching for quite a few years in Australia eventually sort of teaching in a university system there and then um, really as my own practice as a pianist got more and more experimental um, less and less concerned with sort of straight ahead jazz um, a university there and particularly another good mentor sort of invited me in to do a master's degree that was sort of based on you know my experimental practice basically okay. and I, I did a master's degree there wrote a short 
thesis and she said, you know, if, if you like this sort of thing where you're doing this sort of academic work, and I did like it, um, you should this would be a good opportunity to go overseas and study. Right. And that's how I ended up at Columbia. Okay. Basically. Interesting. Yeah. And so do you, that was one of the questions I was, I was thinking about, you know, this, the, the distinction between the straight ahead jazz and, and more experimental music, how was that received within like an academic space? Is that something that you faced? Not, not necessarily resistance, but was there paths or, or clear lanes cut out for that? Or was that something you sort of found uh, on your own? I don't think so. You know, I don't think so. Sometimes I think that, 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 difference is a little overstated sometimes mm. you know um there are some important differences and i do think you know in the history of jazz and improvised music sometimes lines get drawn or you know lines in the sand get drawn by certain people or certain writers or you know sometimes certain musicians mm-hmm. um i think though when you go back and look through the music you know like we were listening to to mingus just before right and yeah. um and we were talking about Don Pullen as a member of Mingus's band. And I think Don Pullen's a good example of somebody who sits in a place where you can't really say he's a straight ahead jazz musician, but you can't really say that he has nothing to do with jazz. He's in this, and there's a lot of musicians like that. Mm-hmm. So I often think that that bound, that sort of division is a little overstated right. in terms of in the, in the sort of academy or in the academic scene, I suppose, you know, I, th- I sometimes think, well, look, in my field of music theory, there's certainly a, a general emphasis on straight ahead music, partly because theorists tend to think that that music is more easily analyzable. You know, mm-hmm. it's more easily transcribable. And, you know, you can say things like there's a certain chord here and they play these notes and <laughs> those notes correlate to the chord. And, Follow it, yeah. You know, and that's those are things that music theorists like to do, you know, mm-hmm. including myself. Um, so certainly somebody who is trying to think about more how Richard Abrams's music and sort of other similar music, it presents a lot of sort of disciplinary challenges for me. Um, but at Columbia, I would say it's not it's not a division because you have people, you know, like like Chris Washburn or George Lewis and Elias Summer and you know um, Kevin Falez and all sorts of you know Bob O'Mealy and Brent Hayes Edwards. All these people are here who are who don't really think in those sorts of terms in terms of divisions. And so when you're surrounded by people who don't think about divisions like that. Mm-hmm you tend not to think too right, much right, about right. the divisions. And I think that's healthy. You know, right. a lot of the musicians I like don't think about divisions. Just make the music. Yeah. But, but what is it about, so what is it about experimental music or if we want to move away from that distinction, the music that sort of sits in between and is more fluid in between certain mm. um, conceptions of music. What is it about experimental music that, that you gravitate to mm. and throughout your whole life, really, it seems? Um. Well, You know, um, we were just talking about, before we were on air, we were talking about Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. you know, the Afrofuturist author, mm-hmm. science fiction writer. And um, in the class I taught today, I taught that class today, and today we were talking about her, and we, we watched this clip of her on Charlie Rose from, from the year 2000. And Charlie Rose asks her um, what she likes about science fiction and what she likes about writing. Um, and she says something which I think gets maybe at at this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. You, I, you'd like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, maybe 
maybe this is similar or maybe this is different to the way you feel about this music. But she said something like, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, you know, the thing about this is this about writing and science fiction is you get to create your own worlds. You know, you get to imagine a world and draw it up as you would like. And I think there's something about experimentalism which aligns with that idea. Is There's a real, in a lot of the music I like, an emphasis on creating a sonic environment, one that you want, rather necessarily than taking sort of conventional jazz paradigms and going from there. Mm. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but um, the stuff that I'm interested in, I suppose, has a has a has a different way of approaching this kind of world creation or yeah. sonic creation. I don't know. How do you feel? Like it feels we like talk, we talk about a lot of the same music together. Right. How do you feel about you know? It does feel similar in the sense that you're creating. It feels like you're creating like a constellation or a universe yeah. of right. of your own that takes from but is not restricted to or or, concert or situated firmly in one or more rooting, yeah. you know, of tradition. And I do feel like that's the case. I, I think, I mean, the music I listen to most frequently is hip-hop. Like, jazz, uh-huh. I'm getting more into, but I'm definitely more knowledgeable about hip-hop. But the same sort of terrain of hip-hop and, and the music that pushes the boundary forward is the music that steps out, I guess, in a way that does experiment. But the artist is coming from a lane of their own and, and creating an imaginary of their own mm. that then you see borrowings from certain tractions and certain fields but it creates a, a, a universe or a constellation of their own sort of palette sonic yeah. palette that i think does make as a listener more interesting it's something mm. you've never heard before mm. and it also invites you to create your own palette in a sense like yeah the music that inspires me is typically music that is out there right or blurs the line between what is commonly heard and not not that there's anything wrong like you mentioned because that was going to be one of my questions is like do you feel any sort of like do you listen to more straight ahead jazz is there any inhibitions that you have towards that music but it doesn't seem like that's the case i mean at all. I, I like all music yeah you know? right and so <laughs> I, so i mean of course there's music that i don't like or you know i'll, I'll put on a record sometimes and not like it it's yeah, not yeah. like i literally like everything but <laughs> but i try not to make my likes and dislikes fall down kind of arbitrary genre lines right, you know right. it's like put it on let's listen to it does it grab me like right. you know that's i suppose the most interesting thing and like you said it's as somebody who makes music having people who are doing these things is inspiring mm-hmm. you know it's, it's sort of this thing of like well if you're doing it exactly i could maybe i could do it too exactly. you know and the more you're around those people the more you're listening to them or the more you're around them or the more you see them live or the more you speak to them the the, the more that sticks, I find. Mm. So yeah, I listen to I listen to Miles and Coltrane and you know Monk and of course. Um, mm-hmm. But um, as like a lot of these musicians, who are my heroes, say, like music is music. You mm-hmm. listen to it, it stands on its own a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like how do you feel like the question of experimentalism or finding your own lane or creating this unique constellation or world corresponds with the demands of the music industry as something that is very specific and mm. has a specific intent like so who was the audience when you're an experimentalist at that point is it you're making music for yourself and you i guess what is the motive to create is the motive different do you think than someone who's more mm. tied to the standard of yeah right that's a complex question i think because there are so many the 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 risk i think in 
again, again, we see this like the the risk of thinking about convention experimentalism as necessarily opposed because we run the risk of saying something that like conventional musicians who play in conventional idioms are doing so for just for mm. audiences, and that's not true. I don't think like mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. play music because most people or people who play music with integrity. They play it because they love it, and that's what they're drawn to do. It just mm-hmm. so happens that I'm not drawn to the same things that other people are. Like right. when I play, you know, when I go back to like trying to play straight ahead jazz, it just doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't feel as true to me as it does in these other ways. So, so the question of audience is super complex because um, we can't just say that people are playing music for an audience, and we can't say that people are only playing music for themselves, right? Mm. Um, it also depends on where you're playing, as in what geographical location, like what city, what country, um, etc. But also the kinds of spaces you're playing in, like if you're playing in the Village Vanguard or you're playing in the Stone or you're playing at the Blue Note. What counts as experimental in those places sometimes mm-hmm. is really different. Like everything that happens at the Stone is probably counted as experimental in the Blue Note mm-hmm. just because of the way the space curates audience's expectations Mm -hmm. likewise probably most of the things that happen in the blue note um are not going to be are are straight ahead compared to what happens in the stone Mm -hmm. so i think when people are engaging with audiences um it depends very much on this like whole constellation of things that are going Mm on last thing i think is it's there's a real danger in correlating convention with large audiences I think, mm. and I, you know, I'm not criticizing you at all. I'm just thinking of like traps that I sometimes fall into. Mm. You know, in my thinking, is that it's it's sometimes easy to think that well, more conventional music has bigger audiences, less conventional. You know, experimental music doesn't have big audiences. I'm not sure that's really borne out. Mm. You know, I think that's an easy way to describe it, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. Mm-hmm. You think about a place like National Sawdust or something. You know, in, Brook- in Williamsburg and that's a place that has a whole variety of things on mm-hmm. there. Um, and in some ways, audiences depend or they trust, they might trust the venue, the programming at the venue. I certainly believe that people go to the venue maybe more than they go to see a particular person sometimes. Mm-hmm. So who we, who we consider to be the audience is just so dependent on right, all of these things. Right. You know, the same thing holds true for things like an, a label or, or a platform, like wherever you get your music from. Mm-hmm. Some people buy music because it's on a particular label, like it's on New Amsterdam or something like that. So, you know, somebody like me, it's like, yeah, I like a bunch of the artists who are on New Amsterdam, so I'm probably going to check out some of the music even if I haven't heard of who those people are. You know, mm-hmm. um, Or if you use Bandcamp or if you use Spotify, you know, there are recommendation algorithms that give you stuff, right. you know. So it's just so complex um, that to think about an audience, who it is in what it is just... A lot of threads, yeah. Yeah, too many threads. I yeah. mean, you go you go out see music, right? Do you, yeah, yeah. So we like, do you have spots that you go to, or do you follow artists around, or how yeah? Do you? It's mainly at this point, it's been individual artists, but there are certain. I mean, the Irving Plaza uh-huh. is big for a lot of hip hop artists will come through. So I've seen two shows there since I've started the year. Mm-hmm. But those are the spaces, like you said, where you kind of expect. And you see that I saw the listing of the people coming up and there were a lot of them were my, my favorite artists. Right. right. And so you, you sort of I guess now I have an image of that place. I didn't think yeah. about it that way. Right. But the audience that that is attracted to one artist will likely be attracted to other artists on that venues list yeah. in the same way that the label situation works out or people in groups like 
mm-hmm. collectives, mm-hmm. which we can get into in a little bit, like the way that you might mess with an artist from uh, within a collective mm. that introduces you to an associate and that associate links you to and it's it's sure. very it's a nebulous almost that i that's one of the also one of the elements that i do appreciate a lot about jazz in specific and i think hip-hop also has correlation with this i guess music in general but especially jazz the idea that you can follow individual artists into rabbit holes that mm. lead you into whole new worlds that right. are really impossible to ever find an end to yeah but even just the way that you list off these names right it's like you've i'm sure you've gone down these rabbit holes where you've you've had those days where you're finding new artists through another one totally yeah i mean i mean as somebody who's a little bit older like for me initially that was looking reading liner notes on cds Mm -hmm. you're like you know you read a liner note on a thelonious monk cd and it says thelonious monk has played with you know charlie parker and you're like who's charlie parker Mm. Better get a Charlie Parker record. <laughs> get a Charlie Parker record. Right. You know, or, in, or you say it says like, Thelonious Monk played with Miles Davis. Who's Miles Davis? Right. Better check out buy a Charlie, buy a Miles Davis compilation. And then it's like, right. it's this compilation. And you're like, who's this guy, Herbie Hancock? You know, right. better go check out Herbie. You know, and it's this like, yeah, rabbit hole or like this network of mm-hmm. of all these interconnected people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You're like, well, I like the bassist on that record, so maybe I'll check out. One of their records. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So mm. I think it's real similar. Right. I was speaking with Mark Hannaford here, uh, talking all things music. So I want to try and corral it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got we got real expansive. Um, but no, I think I think where we left off is interesting in correlation to the class because that's one mm. of the things. Mm. I mean, the class topic, the, the name again, Beyond Boundaries, Radical Black Experimental Music is so big, obviously. Right. And so how do you distill those threads into a class that a group of students it's you said 12 13 students in the yeah class? how that number of students can follow and form a, a solid understanding of the music so where where does that difficulty come in especially specifically yeah. with black music and maybe some of the complications um as far as la- people's just lack of understanding or comp- ability to um have experience with that music in the mm. same way that we might have with other forms of music like how does that complicate the way that you teach a class yeah well so the class so you're right. It's it, you know, th- there's so much, so many threads that to design a like syllabus that goes for 14 weeks or something seems kind of ridiculous. You know, mm. even even if you do as we as we've been doing, basically you do two sort of topics a week and you get like 20 odd things. There's just there's so many people you've left out. Mm. So I've the way I've been trying to frame it. Um, well, the way it was conceived was basically in my head. It was. Um, Here's all the music that you won't encounter in a jazz course and that you won't encounter in like a history of Western music course. Mm. Um, and you probably won't encounter in like a 20th century experimental music course a lot of the time, depending on who it's taught by. There's a lot of asterisks after that last <laughs> statement, you know. Right. But, you know, like here's music that is that is like a history of American experimentalism which doesn't focus around John Cage, basically. Mm-hmm. Nothing against John, well, maybe some things against John Cage, but <laughs> okay. nothing major against John Cage. But, you know, like a lot of the histories of American experimentalism think about sort of basically a history of white composition, you know, mm-hmm. and like a lot of my mentors and my heroes, both musically and in scholarly domains are quick to point out, like there is, you can't, you know, you can't say experimentalism in America and not talk about black music, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I think it's, 
your Fred Moten who points out this mm. idea that when you say black experimentalism, it's like there's a paradox as if there was another kind of experimentalism mm. or as if like blackness and experimentalism was some, somehow opposed, mm. right? You know, so the class is really about, first of all, presenting all of these musicians that mm-hmm. and artists that don't often get talked about in this way, but also not as a not as a linear history. It's not a class where it's like then this and then this and then this. It's like a messy map of practices that <laughs> overlap, and some people have never heard of one another, and some people have, and and you know, and it's second, third of all, I suppose it's not a sort of utopic narration where it's like everybody's finding freedom through their music mm. because it's messy and it's complicated, and people are. You know, sort of this idea of radical practice as something which is like an ongoing eternal struggle, mm-hmm. you know, um, is something that's part of the class as well. So, so the, that's the kind of the main basis, I suppose, of the class. In terms of the challenges, you know, one of the – something that I thought would be a larger challenge was – getting students to really listen to the music because it's easy to frame the music as somehow strange or weird or out there or something like that. And then you run the risk of kind of apologizing for the music, saying like, this is going to be difficult, you know, or something like that. Mm. This is going to be hard. This music is strange, saying things like this. And I was, you know, sort of a month before the class started, I was sort of trying to think about how to frame this thing. And I think at least the way it's panned out is it's better just not to worry about any of that and just get people to listen to the music and get people talking about the music. Mm -hmm. And sure, the class... So first of all, the students have been amazing at like embracing what we listen to mm-hmm. as something that they might not have they might not have heard things like this before um, unless they're already listening to kind of experimental music more broadly but if they're listening to any you know sort of pop music or you know even you're listening to hip-hop a lot of the time you're not really prepared to hear Anthony Braxton or Matana mm-hmm. Roberts or something like that it's you know so I think Asking them to listen carefully, listening in class together. Like actually one of the things that's been really that I've learnt in teaching this class is the importance of like communal listening in the classroom. Mm. How instructive it can be to just all sit in the room and play the track <laughs> and then talk about it. Mm-hmm. It sounds so simple. Mm-hmm. But in an academic setting you're often so focused on like the concepts and the history and the background and these are mm-hmm. the people and these are the dates and this is the place and these are the ideas. Mm-hmm. But more and more I'm finding that if you just sit and play the music and talk about it, you can get to really deep things really quickly because mm-hmm. people are smart and they listen mm-hmm. and when you sit and listen, you can notice things. Mm-hmm. Then if you do it together, you like have the power of sort of bouncing off one another. Right. So I, I would say that the, ch- the challenges of the class have really been to like really try to get the most time possible, you know, and it's an ongoing lesson towards doing that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to do that in a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> good, good segue. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I think there's a lot of validity to that in another element that I think relates to. I mean, it is a form of, of text. 
of trying to start a reading group here on campus. Yeah. I think I mentioned to you, yeah, you way mentioned back. That. Yeah. So we have a, our first meeting on Tuesday. Oh, cool. So we, you know, making progress. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but literally the exact same principle, I think, applies. The idea that in a, in a group setting, we can accomplish a lot when we collectively read and collectively question and yeah. collectively inquire and collectively yeah. pursue an understanding of a text that's based on like collective knowledge, which starts from that collective listening or collecting collective reading, reading yeah. which we definitely want to do in the group. And so I do think that's a, a, a very practical pedagogic, like pedagogical approach to yeah. it really. Yeah. Um, and so a couple of things that I really, really resonated me th- with me quickly w- w- in regards to the class is that the, the association, the inherent um, relation between blackness and experimentalism that you talked about mm. um, and the way that that sort of informs a lot of, the music i'm trying to grab grapple with this and it makes sense and it definitely i'm thinking about it it, it does make a lot of sense but has that h- how have you seen that um can you expand on that i guess what does that mean how is that exhibited in some of the music yeah uh, yeah okay so well, so well first of all i have to i have to give props to the people who i've read and who have taught me about these kinds of things because my understanding of these issues has to go far beyond like my graduate school you know mm-hmm. these it's not like you can do a six-year degree and understand the relationship between experimentalism and blackness you mm-hmm. know so at this stage it's really important for me to like mention some people who i've already talked about you know ellie hisama and and george lewis and brent hayes edwards and kevin Fulez and chris washburn but also people who i perhaps know a little less well but whose scholarship i think is really important somebody like daphne brooks mm. um or sadia hartman um, um, I think these are people who think of performance and experimentalism not necessarily, you know, like from not necessarily from a, a music, from the discipline of music. You know, they're in critical race studies and black studies and comparative literature and English and things like this. But because the things they're writing about are often about performance, they really brush up against music in many ways. Mm-hmm. So. I don't think I can. I, I don't think I'm in a position to make any overarching statements about about the relationship between blackness and experimentalism. But I can say that in a lot of the artists that we talk about, they become acutely aware of that relationship in the way that their their music and their their sort of artistic their creative practice is received i think that seems to be a very common thread is that there seems to be a very you know throughout the 20th century and really even into the 21st century but especially in the 20th century beginning when we begin in the class which is about 1960 it's it's a very blunt and coarse understanding of what Mm -hmm. um but on the part of critics largely um and some musicians what what how how sort of this experimental tradition um, comes out of a black musical tradition. So so what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that you know when you have people like Ornette Coleman or Morha Richard Abrams or Henry Threadgill or Oscar Mitchell or Amina Claudine Myers or you know any of these people, Sun Ra critics and some older musicians don't understand its connection to the black tradition. You know, they just they they seem to really think that it has that it's a real um, negation of tradition, even as those artists are saying no. Like I am paying my respects to 
the masters of the past. Mm-hmm. People don't seem because to them the music seems really different, and so they're unable to make that connection. Mm. So there's automatically this kind of struggle that happens where the artists are trying to claim this history. They're trying to say, no, like Charlie Parker was an experimentalist. Jolly Morton was an experimentalist, you know, all these William Grant still was an experimentalist, you know, and that's what I'm tapping into. Um, because critics and, and, and whatnot are sort of creating this severance, you know, between them mm-hmm. and associating them necessarily with Cage or Stockhausen. Just to say which is not to say that they're not checking those musicians out, but they want to claim both as well. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the time it, it's about to me you know, it's very much about um, this idea of a, a long history of experimentalism. Um, yeah, I would say that's yeah. something that comes up over and over again. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot to it, as you mentioned. I mean, you can't encapsulate that in a in a small summary. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, but, yeah. Yeah, It's and it's fraught at every turn. You know, mm. you think about somebody like Cecil Taylor. Okay. He's a complex example. Well, everybody's a complex example, but... You know, somebody like Cecil Taylor, who is, <clears throat> who is sort of rejecting any particular pigeonhole. You know, he it's like he doesn't want to be reduced to Duke Ellington or Thelonious Monk because because to simply reduce him to that would be to ignore the study that he's done of Bartok or Stravinsky or mm-hmm. you know of so many composers. But to say that he's only Bartok or Stravinsky is to negate the mm-hmm. history of black experimental practice. And this is the thing that seems to come up over and over again is people, critics can't understand the both and mm. rather than the e- either or. They seem to always fall into this like it has to be one or the other. Why? Why is, why is that necessary, I guess? Well, well, depends how cynical you want to be, I suppose. <laughs> you know, Humans, I think we have an innate desire to categorize things a lot of the times that perhaps we can't understand or we aren't willing to put the effort into understanding i don't know you know i think this is a deeper question than (laughs) you know but there is there's there seems to be there's a need to categorize in terms of like to classify or something like that yeah um but i also think maybe actually actually i think maybe here's a better answer is that we inherit a long tradition of talking about music and art in a very eurocentric way Mm-hmm. And I say we as like people who attend a university, mm-hmm. you know, um, is a very generally speaking Eurocentric view of the history of art making, which I'm including music in that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so even, you know, in 2019, where it seems like more and more people are questioning that centricity, um, we inherit this way of thinking of like the west you know the modernity Mm. as like a white history basically Mm. and then there's everything else and so maybe this maybe this way of thinking about these musicians that we're talking about is somehow in dialogue with that in some ways and it's fascinating to think about the ways where we we perhaps don't even recognize how those sort of priests conceptions inform our thinking in ways that Mm. we can't even identify Mm. unless you really do you know sit down and and think about language or the way that we talk about the musicians i mean even like in in the ways that i'm asking some of these questions it's like it it's obvious that you know those are things that i 
haven't even recognized in ways where it's like fascinating how's that how did that slip through the cracks almost yeah well it, especially so regards to music something that we mm, consume so frequently mm, mm, you know? yeah but, i mean same for me it's like yeah. the whole the whole process of going through this material you know over and over again both reading about it and listening to it is to try to uncover more ways that it it undermines these divisions mm. you know it's we're constantly told in various ways that there are divisions, this or this. Like those divisions may, might be disciplinary, you know, mm -hmm. as in you're a music theorist uh, as opposed to a historical musicologist or as opposed to an ethnomusicologist or you're a historian or, you know, you're a this. As mm. soon as you start dealing with those labels, you're dealing with not being other things. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a historian, you're not an English major. That's that's part of a label is to, <laughs> right. is to say what you are, but to also say what you're, you're not. not. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm. So, you know, it's because classification and, uh, you know, these things are such an inherent part of any system, right? A university is full of these sorts of things. Mm. We automatically run up against, you know, these sort of categories. And then when we try to put things in those categories, it's like, not all these things go so well, you know, right. in these categories. Right. That's, you know, and that's sort of part of the motivation. That's the idea of the beyond boundaries sort of part of the title of the mm. class. It's, 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 it's a both and kind mm -hmm. of thing. It is this and also this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's beyond the idea of it being one or the other. Right, right. Yeah. All right, so I want to have time. We have, it's already 9.40. <laughs> time, time. We're talking so much. <laughs> so, so I want to get to the music yeah. in a brief moment. Yeah. But I did want to quickly transition into, so some of the things that you raised, I think just talking about, your like position within the larger history mm. of your own identity and your mm. own, I guess, positionality within these conversations that obviously are much bigger than you or I yeah. individually, right. regardless of, you know, uh, let alone our race, racial background and, yep. and from Australia, as you yep. mentioned. Yep. So how does that situate, how does your identity situate with your research, with the class, with your questions that you ask? Yeah, well, I think, I try to think about that a lot, you mm -hmm. know, because as a white middle-class Australian, it's I'm investing in a tradition which really I can't pretend to be privy to from any sort of first-person kind of way, you know. So at the moment, my best answer is this, is I'm trying to be as humble and as um, sincere, I suppose, in my research as I possibly can be um, without being naive mm. i think um without you know because i because i think being naive is also a pitfall in terms of not giving the sort of the music or the history the critical eye that it deserves like you know like all history does and all music does i think so i think part of it is is being humble i think from a pedagogical point of view a large part of it is to recognize the expertise that I have as a scholar. You know, I have spent a lot of time studying this music. So I do have things to say <laughs> which can be informative to people who aren't experts on the, on the topic. On the other hand, I'm not trying to tell people how they should be listening to this music. You know, mm. I think this music a lot of the time, it's on one hand, it's important to understand the sort of contexts in which it was made. And it's also important as as a as a somebody who thinks about music a lot and listens to music a lot. It's very useful, I think, 
to point out aspects of the music that seem salient in various ways, you know. So to somehow guide people's listening in a way that helps them grasp some aspect of it, you know. Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges with the class is, you know, there are music majors and non-music majors in the class. So it's important to be able to somehow give people a sort of to lend them a hand to listen to the music mm-hmm. but without dictating what is the most important thing about the music mm. you know so i'm trying as best as i can to like present the music in this way and then to really encourage my students to formulate their ideas about the music think about the issues around the creation and the reception of the music but ultimately to think about how they're listening to it i mm. think so you know, it's it's a difficult issue to think about, um, you know, my positionality in terms of the pedagogy and the research of this teaching. And it's way more complicated than I suppose we have time to talk about. But I think those are some of the my approaches at the moment. Right. You know? yeah. And so you mentioned the way that uh, other people might listen or, or the way that you might guide other people's listening, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, when you listen to some of the artists that are on the syllabus mm-hmm. from Sun Ra to Amina Claudia Myers mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Alice Coltrane, mm-hmm. how do you, what are aspects of the music that you grapple with? What are what, what stands out to you from their music? If there's a way to verbalize that, I guess. Well, um, well, I think first thing is I, I, I can't make general claims about all of the music. You know, it's there's nothing that there's not one thing that I can say about every piece that's on the syllabus. Mm. But I can say um, that for somebody like Alice Coltrane or Amina Claudine Myers, you see intersections of some of their influences. So in Amina Claudine Myers' case, that might be sort of the church and her background as an organist. Um, in um, Alice Coltrane's case, this may be her connection to both the sort of be- her bebop sort of upbringing and also her connection with John Coltrane and her interest in um, um, Hinduism and things like this. Right. And so uh, trying to maybe point people in the direction of the sound that somehow expresses some of those things, but to ultimately leave the interpretation up to the, to the listener. Right, right. Okay, so we have about 14 minutes. All right. Um, and so we have... We I, should listen to something. I, I think we will. So African Blues is the, you know, the Amita Claudine Chires, Myers, Myers trio. Yeah. Um, that one's about 10 minutes long. So I'm thinking we can we can play a galaxy around mm-hmm. Old Dumer, which is about five minutes. Yeah. And we have time to discuss. We could play the full African Blues and just fade out for mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we could discuss maybe a couple minutes of African Blues. But I feel like, like you said, the, the latter half of this song is so interesting. The, I mean, the whole thing is so interesting. <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, this is the problem. The music requires more time right. than we often have. Um, but I'll leave it up to you. I trust whatever you, you just, know, I trust <laughs> your choice. Okay, let's 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 play the five minutes so that we have time to fully discuss a song and we can hopefully use that to That sounds great. Transition. All right. Okay, so this is Alice Coltrane, Galaxy Around Odume.
So that's Alice Coltrane, Galaxy Around, Odumer, off of the World Galaxy album, which we just were talking about is an incredible album in, in, in general. I wanted to play another one, but it was um, a lot longer. But Galaxy in, what messed this up? Sachin, Sacha Danana, Danda. Dandanda. Dandanda. That song is incredible as well. So mm. what do you hear when you listen to a song yeah. like that as yeah. a music theorist? Well, well... I don't know. I might leave aside the music theorist part okay. it, you know, in a sense. But, you know, like in terms of what we were talking about before, right, mm-hmm. one of the things I hear in that record is an incredible sonic palette, mm. right? The strings, the rhythm section, her organ playing, the piano playing. There's an incredible range of sounds that are going on. And it's 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 can, it can be easy to miss the range that's going on as opposed to thinking about just sort of being overwhelmed with the amount that's happening. Mm. You know, there are moments where there's almost nothing happening. And then there are these other moments where the strings are like playing in unison with the bass and playing this sort of melodic line over a swinging kind of rhythm section. And there are other moments where it's there are these incredible chromatic clusters, like mm-hmm. this dissonance that happens in the string, like a cloud of like a storm cloud happening over the rhythm section. Mm. So I think the first thing for me is just the incredible breadth of sound that's going on in that performance is kind of amazing. Mm. For her to, you know, mobilize that instrumentation in that way is an in- incredible feat as a composer and an arranger. The other thing that really strikes me about that record is just how funky the record, how like in those moments where the the feel, you have this sort of rolling swing feel, which is to me sort of coming out of her work with Coltrane. And, you know, on this record, she plays A Love Supreme um, Mm, and... mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the first track of the record that escapes me for a second, but it's a, it's it's also a Coltrane piece, mm-hmm. um, and this is sort of like a sort of remixing of Coltrane in this new or this sort of in her own sonic world that's going on. So I right. hear that kind of modal melody that's happening, as well as that sort of rolling swing feel, as her remixing of some of the lessons that she learned with Coltrane. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I think the last thing is just always with Alice Coltrane, the organ, the sounds that she gets from the organ, I think. Hearing those those like electronic, really electronic sounds in, mm. I think this record is 1972 or this something a while like ago. that. Right. You know, is this is an incredible kind of sound that she's conjuring at mm. this at this time something you know obviously her organ playing that she would become known for as the years sort of went on so i suppose those are the main things that jump out for me i don't know what about you what are the things you're hearing <laughs> um it's so interesting i i think for moments there are moments where i do hear individual i get caught up in the strings or yeah. i got caught up in the drums a lot yeah i like the i like drums as an instrument so i really was right but it's, I guess it's a testament to the music that as you listen to one thing, you lose it. It it's a it's a it's a relationship between all of the sounds that you can get lost into one mm. and tune dragged almost into another. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's sort of what it is. It's sort of that swaying with the way that the strings um, 
I don't know the words in in, in a musical sense, but crescendo of strings, yeah, right? Yeah, right <laughs> you know yeah. the the burst of strings that yeah. that I think you lose track of the drums for that brief moment, right. but then the strings die down and you regain the the, the drumming. And, and so I guess the the back and forth, the yeah, the relationship that 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 creates is so interesting. Yeah, but I I think it's more. I get lost in it as opposed to being able to fully pick out the some of the intricacies. Yeah, well, I think I think well, f- okay. So a couple of things. I think you know, repeated listening is something that yeah, helps. Yeah. You know, like it's it's. I've listened to this track a lot, so I <laughs> like the things I'm saying are not just things that I heard. Oh, just the first now, listen, right? right yeah, right. <laughs> right? It's like, this music is deep, so it requires multiple listens to really like pass out some of these things. But the second of all, the second of all, I, I just to pick up on something you said. It's like. I don't believe that you need like specific musical terminology to describe these things mm, a lot of the time. Mm. Like sometimes they can help, right? Like because it just allows you to say less words or something like that, right? <laughs> right. To say, but there's a difference between saying crescendo and saying I think what you said was burst. Burst, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like that's a slightly different thing. And I think, you know, before we were talking about how important language is and right, how right, we right. like constantly trying to be aware of the way the language you use to talk about this music. Mm. I think talking about the sound is also part of like trying to figure out how to articulate it is what it is. I, I, I'm not sure if crescendo is the best word, even though it might <laughs> be the like quote unquote musicological terminology. Right, right. Like maybe burst is something, it's more poetic. It tells <laughs> us something more about how we feel about the sound. You know, when I was listening to that record, when we were like off, you know, not on the microphones, I uh, this music often makes me like move back mm. and forth, like nod my head and like roll back and forth. The same way that I might if I was listening to a hip hop record or mm-hmm. listening to mm-hmm. like something where there's a very clearly discernible beat. Mm-hmm. But there's something about like the way you said the music sort of shifts back and forth in this right, way right. that sort of gets me moving in a right. in a different way but in you know in a way nonetheless you mm-hmm. know so i think a lot of the time when i'm trying to get my students to think about listening these are the kinds of things i'm mm-hmm. trying to get them to think about not and this is going so this goes back to the music theory thing this is not a project in identifying music music theoretical concepts like mm-hmm. here's this kind of chord and here's now this kind of meter and here's this mm-hmm. here's this thing and here's this thing but like just trying to direct people's attention and to get them thinking about the way we talk right, about it right yeah that's so fascinating yeah i think it is one of those things where often there's a a belief that music talking about music has to be within this sort of Eurocentric framework that you did mention, right? That again, I I didn't even think about. But yeah, I I, I mean, I, I I think burst in that instance, right, is the is the way to describe it. That makes sense. But it's interesting how yeah, it's interesting how 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 structured our thinking can become. Well, yeah, I think it's just we can still use that language. We can right. use the Eurocentric language. It can be useful. But we don't have to apologize for not using it. Mm, I think is mm. is the thing, where, right, you know, right. which is like this other metaphorical or physical or poetic language is just as descriptive, just in different ways. Right. You know? right. And I, when I th- again thinking about traditional black radicalism and the importance of poetry and poetic thinking and sort of alternate forms of language production or something. I mean, you think of Sun Ra; it's mm-hmm. shot through with poetry and words that seem to mean other things. And, mm-hmm. you know, Thelonious Monk is the same. You mm-hmm. know, it's always there's this word play and this play on language mm-hmm. that, that it, in a certain way, I think it's it talking about poetry and metaphor and body movement and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes aligns more with that, that with that yeah. some of that work. I think words is word word uh, language is so important in the 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 reclamation of language and and the creation of language is so important. I, I mean, my favorite artist, probably favorite visual artist, maybe artist period, is mm. Basquiat. Yeah, and, right. And his his usage of word, the usage. I mean, his convert his. His art totally fits in all that we've really been talking about yeah, today. Yeah. But the way that you can disassemble and reassemble and recreate and mm-hmm. deconstruct and mm-hmm. create something new. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. All right, so we have <laughs> a couple seconds left. But okay. what, what, what's your next class um, session lesson plan? Uh, the class on Tuesday, uh, if I remember correctly, is um, talking about Anthony Braxton's operas, mm. Tr- the Trillium series, and also Tyshawn Sori's song cycle for Josephine Baker. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Man, I really appreciate you for, for giving us a little lesson here today, having a good conversation in, peer, in, in general. Me. really appreciate uh, it. We'll have to do this again because I think there's a lot that obviously was left <laughs> yeah, <laughs> untouched. Yeah, let's go again anytime. Definitely, definitely. So you've been listening to Mark Hannaford. He, again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm a grad student here at Columbia University, but he's also an instructor uh, teaching a, a class titled Beyond Boundaries, Radical Black Experimental Music. Um, a lot that we were able to touch, a lot that we didn't, um, but definitely keep thinking, keep listening to the music. Um, and appreciate you for tuning into today's show. My name is Amiri Teller. You've been listening to News and Arts. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.